0: I was recently lent a book of photographs depicting the devastation caused by the 2011 floods. Uh, Massive floods are becoming increasingly common the world over, and they often occur with very little warning. I wasn't here in 2011, but I imagine that people uh, couldn't really believe what was happening. Of course, if the authorities have enough warning, they try to get people out of their homes to stop them being trapped. Uh, They make announcements on TV, radio, social media. They may even send people knocking door to door to warn people of the impending danger. Well, it's this kind of work that we see John the Baptist doing in Luke chapter three. His message is one of warning and it's delivered with the same kind of urgency that we might expect from someone announcing an imminent and catastrophic flood. So what was the emergency? And how can the danger be avoided? That's what uh, we're going to try and answer this morning. Uh, but first, if we look to the beginning of chapter 3, we see this very precise dating of these events. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Traconitus, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This serves as a kind of a fanfare, announcing the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Chapters 1 and 2 are vitally important, but it's almost as if they form the backdrop. They're the introduction. This is where the story really gets going. And we can see that Tiberius Caesar ruled the Roman Empire, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea on the far eastern edge of the empire. The Herodians were uh, serving as puppet kings, and Caiaphas was the high priest, although it seems that his father Annas was still exercising authority in his retirement. But the names of all these rulers were synonymous with oppression, tyranny, and the abuse of power. The Jewish people were deeply unhappy with the status quo. It was like a powder keg ready to explode. And the Jews were waiting for a word from God. God had been silent for about 400 years. There'd been no prophets in Israel. And people were desperate to see God do something. Desperate to see God deliver on his promises. Many were expecting a divinely inspired movement that would bring new freedom to God's people and is it is onto this scene steps John the Baptist. John was the cousin of Jesus and the son of Zechariah the priest. So so being part of the priestly line it would have been expected that John uh, would also be a priest. But instead of going into priestly training he took himself off into the wilderness into the desert and he was rather an eccentric character. He wore coarse camel hair clothing He ate locusts and wild honey and presumably whatever else he could find to eat in the desert. So bear grills, eat your heart out. But make no mistake, John was quite odd, to say the least. When we look at John, he looks like he'd be more at home in the Old Testament, one of the Old Testament prophets. And that is because John is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. In Luke 16, verse 16, Jesus says this about him. He says the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. John was the last to point forwards to Jesus. He literally steps out of the Old Testament and into the New. It's like he forms a bridge between the two. And he comes with a startling message. He preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when we think of repentance, we tend to think about it being a sorry, when we think about baptism, we tend to think about it being a Christian thing. Uh, But actually, it was originally a Jewish thing. So it was possible for someone who wasn't born a Jew to become a Jew, uh, and baptism was part of that process. So a a non-Jew, a Gentile, who wanted to be included in the people of God would have to do three things. Uh, They'd receive uh, instruction in the law of Moses from a scribe, If they were male, they'd be circumcised and they'd be baptised. So baptism was the rite by which Gentiles became Jews. Those who were born into the Israelite family didn't need to be baptised because they were already Jewish. By baptising Jews, John is placing them in the same category as non-Jews, as Gentiles. I think you can see how controversial that would be. So these people who are coming to be baptized, it's almost as if they're becoming Jewish all over again. They're remembering what it means to be God's people. When Israel crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land, God called them to serve him alone, to love their neighbors, and to pursue justice. And what we see throughout the whole of the Old Testament is that uh, Israel repeatedly failed at this. So when these people are baptized by uh, John in the Jordan, it's almost as if they're winding the clock back to the Exodus, to the time when uh, God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, to the crossing of the Red Sea, and even more obviously, the crossing of the Jordan River. In fact, where John was baptizing these people was very close to the spot where Israel originally crossed over. So they are passing through the waters of the Jordan, all over again, to live in the land as God's people. So this is a renewal movement. God's people are are, are being given the opportunity to make a fresh start. Of course, the people being baptized didn't understand the full implications of this. John didn't understand the implications of this because Jesus hadn't yet begun his public ministry. Um, he'd, He'd not been arrested and put on trial, He'd not been crucified, he hadn't died and been buried, and he hadn't risen from the dead. So we remember that John's baptism is a baptism of preparation. John is preparing the hearts of the people to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So all kinds of people are coming to receive John's baptism, and he begins to preach to the crowd. And he doesn't open with a story or a clever joke, or a statistic to grab people's attention. He starts by saying, you brood of vipers. Imagine if I started a sermon like that. You bunch of snakes. Might not go down very well. Uh, And if you think that's bad, he hasn't even got started. He goes on to say, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And you might be thinking, but he's preparing the way for Jesus. And Jesus demonstrates God's love for us. Why is he talking about wrath? That doesn't sound very nice. Well, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but inherit eternal life. That verse is so well known because it encapsulates the gospel so well. God does love us. That is why he entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ and died on a cross for our sins. But John's message is one of constant warning. Sin is real. The consequences of sin are real. Human beings are in very uh, at very real risk of perishing. And it is God who makes this reality known to us. God sent John with this warning because he wants people to heed it and be saved through Jesus. John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And John the Baptist called his hearers to repentance. Well, belief and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. When we turn away from sin, we are turning to Jesus. We're putting our faith in Jesus. If we are walking away from Jesus and we repent, then we turn around and we walk towards Jesus. But God will not force us to turn to Jesus. If we keep walking away from Jesus, we will fall on the wrong side of God's judgment. Now, I know uh, that a lot of people struggle with this. A few weeks back, I was speaking with a colleague about universalism. Universalism is the belief that everyone will ultimately be saved, regardless of their response to Jesus in this life. But I don't believe you can get to that from Scripture. Uh, Today's passage is one example. We could also look at the teachings of Jesus. We could look at the witness of the Bible as a whole, the Old and the New Testament. Uh, It all points in one direction. But I understand why people struggle with this. And my friend summed it up. He said, as a father myself, I can't imagine that any loving father would refuse to forgive his child whether they were sorry or not. And I get that. I get that. If in the future my children were to do me some tremendous wrong, I feel certain that I'd forgive them no matter what. But as I said to my friend, I couldn't force them to love me. And I couldn't force them to live with me in my home. And that is the tragedy of sin. It is turning away from a loving father and refusing to live in his home. We'll remember the story of the prodigal son and how that goes. If we persist in our sin and do not repent, then we are refusing to live with God permanently, forever. Now John knew something about his audience that comes to the fore in verse 8. He says, Produce free fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, the implications of walking away from God are unambiguous. There are real consequences to rejecting God. But many, if not most of the Jews, Uh, thought that they were okay uh, because they were Jewish. They had Abraham as their father, as their ancestor, and so they assumed that they would fall on the right side of God's judgment on account of their ethnicity. Uh, Jews were awaiting the Messiah, the true king, and it was generally expected that this Messiah would bring devastating judgment. The Messiah would be a Uh, judge as well as a savior that was part of mainstream Jewish thought Uh, the the Messiah would bring justice to the world but it was assumed that God would judge in favor of the Jews to the detriment of the rest of the world the 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 non-Jews the Gentiles many in the crowd assumed that because they were Abraham's children everything would be all right and John is saying to them don't assume that don't assume that. And I think we can make similar assumptions. I've heard people say, well, I'm a good person. If there is a God, I'll be okay. Don't assume that. There are no good people in the truest sense of the word. Only God is good. We are all fallen, broken, sinful human beings who need Jesus. But a lot of us are in denial about our sin. I'm not making this out to be some great sin, but I once watched my nephew, who was four or five at the time, uh, shoot my brother in the back of the head with a Nerf bullet, and that's after repeated conversations about not firing in people's faces and people's heads. Anyway, of course, my brother turned round to confront his assailant, and Josh is stood there, Nerf gun in hand, barrel still smoking as it were, and before my brother had chance to say anything, Josh blurted out, "It wasn't me." <laughs> But we all do it. We all struggle to face up to our wrongdoing. In order to receive forgiveness, we've got to acknowledge sin and change our hearts. We can't remove the reality of sin and judgment from the gospel. True repentance, that is turning to God, can only happen when we recognize our moral predicament. The message of the gospel cannot be watered down to this. God loves us. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to love God and to love others. Whilst that is true, it says nothing of sin, impending judgment, or the need to repent. I think we're all for emulating Christ and loving people in practical ways. And John the Baptist certainly was, as we'll see. But if that's all we preach, we're preaching an incomplete gospel What's often referred to as the social gospel there are good elements to it but it's incomplete and it fails to give the world the kind of warning that John is giving in this passage the Christian ethicist Richard Nyberg described the social gospel like this he said a god without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross I don't think I need to point out the irony that that is the very opposite of the gospel. So being a nice person is not going to save us. We need Jesus. Religious rituals, whether it's circumcision, baptism, communion, are not going to save us. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. You remember that the opposite side of the coin to faith is repentance. We can't put our faith in Jesus. We can't follow Jesus without repenting. It's not possible. And so our lives, over time, must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And that is what John is saying. He's saying if you've turned to God, there'll be evidence of that in your life. There'll be some kind of change. There'll be visible fruit. If not, then you have to question whether you have really turned to God. That is what John is saying to his audience. Uh, But this message is even more pertinent to us. John's baptism was one of preparation. Those who receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Christians, are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that is a baptism of transformation. As Christians, we should be able to see the fruit of repentance growing and developing in our lives. So the crowd respond to John's message. They say, what should we do then? John replies, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Like many of the Old Testament prophets, John could see the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And he's saying, something has to be done. John is saying, be more loving, generous, compassionate. Don't be self-centered. Then the tax collectors ask the same question. They say, what should we do? As you probably know, tax collectors were Jews who were collecting tax uh, from their own people on behalf of Rome. They were seen as the ultimate traitors. And they could determine how much tax to collect. So Rome would take its piece of the pie, and whatever the tax collectors could raise over and above that, that went in their own pockets. So you can imagine uh, many of these tax collectors became quite wealthy, basically through extortion. And what what does John say they must do? He says, don't collect any more than you are required to. In other words, be honest tax collectors. Don't abuse your position. And in Luke 19, we read of a tax collector, Zacchaeus, who encounters Jesus and his life is completely transformed. In the end, he says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That is fruit in keeping with repentance. Even some soldiers ask John, what should we do? And John replies, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. In other words, don't try to bump up your wages by abusing your power and authority. So John gave a series of clear, simple demands that if obeyed would demonstrate that people meant business. He warned his audience of the coming judgment, which is just as much a reality for us as it was for them. He called them to repentance And he gave them practical examples of what repentance might actually look like for them. Again, we're not saved because of the fruit of repentance. We're not saved because of our good deeds. We can't earn our salvation. It is a free gift from God. But faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. So if we have genuinely put our faith in Jesus, there ought to be some evidence of that in our lives. The bottom line is this, we if, we, if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, there should be a noticeable difference in the way that we live. I'm not talking about perfection. None of us are perfect and we won't be this side of heaven. But there should be some tangible evidence that we belong to Jesus. John was quite specific when he answered the crowd and the tax collectors and the soldiers. He told them plainly how they could go against the grain of the corrupt systems and practices that exist in our world. So what should we do? What should we do? What are the areas of our lives that are inconsistent with our faith? What are the things that are hindering our obedience to Christ? Now, I doubt here anyone, uh, I doubt that anyone here is involved in extortion. I don't know that for sure, but I doubt it. So what does fruit in keeping with repentance mean for us? It could mean letting go of an idolatrous relationship to career, possessions, or money. It could mean being 100% honest with our tax return, or refusing to pull a sickie, you know, taking a few extra days paid leave when really there's nothing wrong with us. It could mean turning our back on pornography, or cleaning up our thought life, Remember that this fruit, the purpose of it, is not for people to see it and say, oh, what a wonderful example of a Christian. God sees our hearts. He sees the fruit that is being produced in our lives. It could mean living more generously or being more loving and attentive to our family. It could mean that we don't gossip or try to tear uh, people down. I could go on all day. All of those things would be fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, we're all struggling with something. Every single person in this room is struggling with something. And if we're struggling with any of those things, it doesn't mean that we don't belong to Jesus. But as Christians, we should not sit comfortably with sin. We should fight against it continually so that over time we see more and more fruit in keeping with repentance. The crowd who were listening to John, this fiery prophet in the wilderness, began to question whether he might be the Messiah. And John responded with these words, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Actually, this is exciting stuff. The arrival of God's long-awaited Messiah is imminent. He will bring freedom to Israel, though not in the way that anyone had expected. He will be merciful to those who repent and turn to him. He will gather them into his kingdom, like a farmer gathering wheat into his barn. But he will also bring God's justice to the world, and that will mean naming and dealing with evil. Those who reject Jesus will be separated from him forever, like the chaff that gets burned up. Now, to our modern ears, that sounds harsh. But if a person refuses to repent of their wrongdoing, refuses to put their faith in Jesus, on what other basis can they be brought into a relationship with God? But we must remember 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us that God wants all people to be saved, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Let me just say that again. God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God loves us. God loves the world. However, he will not override our free will and force us to enter his kingdom. But in his great love for us, he has opened the door wide and we are free to walk through it. Verse 18 reminds us that John proclaimed the good news. John's message is abrasive, but it is good news. Because God, through his son Jesus, has made a way back for us to him. Anyone can take that way. That is good news. But it's also urgent news. If we knew that someone's home was about to be cut off by a flood... Wouldn't we warn them? If we talk about God's love, but completely avoid talking about sin and judgment because it's a bit awkward and people don't really want to hear that. Uh, It's not very popular. Well, we're not being loving, we're being misleading. And we are, in fact, uh, leading people into a false sense of security. God does love us. And he longs for us to turn away from sin and death by turning to his son, Jesus Christ. John gave people a stark warning, uh, but he also gave them tremendous hope. The world is in a mess. We are in a mess. And our only hope is to repent and put our faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your great love for the world. There's not a single person who you don't love. There's not a single person who you don't want to see repent and turn to you to receive the the life, the fullness of life that you offer. Heavenly Father, help us to be very realistic about our own sin and the things that we need to repent of rather than pointing the fingers at other people. Help a father to uh, have a sense of urgency about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, that we can be brought into a right relationship with you through Jesus. Father, that way is open to everyone, and we need to make sure that the world hears uh, the warning but also hears the tremendous news, the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll lay that upon our hearts this morning. Amen.